and also to their office and to trust that God would provide for them and would help them. The observers will report that John's ministry is significant. There is multitudes that are coming. John is telling the people things that are contrary to, um, uh, to our teachings, and thus something ought to be done regarding it. Now, keep this theme in mind. What happens to the herald happens to the king. When Jesus begins his ministry, they're going to send out an observing party to see what he is doing. Then they're going to investigate, and they begin to question Yeshua over and over again. Then they report back what Yeshua is doing is this. He is proclaiming himself as the Messiah. It is significant. And just as the Jewish leadership is going to seek to bring an end to John's ministry, they will do the same with regard to Yeshua. So what happens to the herald? Remember how the herald was born? And the, the same sort of parallels between John and Yeshua continue uh, throughout the remainder of uh, the gospel accounts. In paragraph 23, we have this promise stated by John. In Matthew's account, verse 11, he says that I indeed baptize or immerse you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to bear. He shall immerse you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So in verse 11, he tells us the one who is coming after John will perform two kinds of immersions. John has come to immerse with water. And he's immersing them with water with respect to repentance and with respect to the kingdom of God is at hand because the Messiah is going to make himself known very quickly and very suddenly. He says, with respect to this one who is coming, he too, like the herald, he too will have a ministry of immersion. But his immersion will be different than mine. He will indeed, he says, baptize with the Spirit of God, and he will baptize with fire. We'll see what these mean in a moment. Those who believe Messiah will baptize or immerse with his Spirit and with the Spirit of God. And the remainder, uh, the letters of Paul particularly, explain to us what that is and what the uh, baptizing work of the Holy Spirit uh, provides the believer with and what he, that is the Spirit of God, um, uh, what he does in the life of the believer. So he's going to immerse with the Spirit of God. And secondly, he says, this one is also going to immerse in the fire of judgment those who are unresponsive to uh, his calling and to his provision for life uh, everlasting. Now, let, let's just talk a little bit about what baptism is and what it means. We talked um, a little bit about the history of it, or at least its context in Jewish tradition, with respect to uh, becoming a proselyte. And we, re we would refer to that as proselyte baptism. But what Yeshua is telling us is that those who repent and accept the Messiah, on the one hand, and those who reject and do not accept the Messiah are also, because he goes on here and look in verse 12. He says, this one's, uh, his hand, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. 
So as we look at this section, as John explains these two baptisms, this is the images he presents us with. He says, those who repent are described as being wheat. And as the farmer would gather wheat into the barn, which would be to bring them into the kingdom, that's what the imagery is, is um, presenting, they would then be filled with God's spirit and brought into, into God's kingdom. On the other hand, those who reject the Messiah are like chaff that are then burned and are not brought into uh, the barn. The idea of burning means to suggest judgment. It doesn't mean annihilation, but it does mean uh, a separation and alienation uh, from God. In verses 24 through 20, oh, and then in verse 18, he says one other thing. In, in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 3, he says, with many other exhortations, therefore, he proclaimed good news uh, unto the people regarding the coming of the Messiah. In, in paragraphs 24 through 27, and that's what I'm hoping we'll be able to cover this evening, uh, we then deal with the baptizing ministry of John. We'll talk more about baptism. The baptism of Yeshua marks the last act of his private life and the first act of his public life or his public uh, ministry. The key phrase or term here is the word baptism we t or immersion. And we talked about this again earlier with regard to the Jewish people. In the Hebrew terms, we have the word mikvah, which is a reference to the place where immersion would take place, whereas the word tefillah is a word that denotes the immersion itself. And the word does not mean to sprinkle or to pour. Um, and that's of interest to us with regard to various Christian traditions where you have the uh, sprinkling of water on a child with immersion or in baptism, such as in Presbyterian churches um, and in some Lutheran and even Methodist churches. I've uh, seen that take place. But the word in the Hebrew does means to immerse and not to sprinkle or pour, and that is the Jewish tradition and practice. The Greek words, I didn't have Greek type, so I, I couldn't get it on here in the Greek, but the Greek term to bat, uh, bapto is the verb which means to dip or to dye, and it's oftentimes used of cloth that would be dipped into a dye and then would be transformed from you know, a white cloth to a green cloth or a blue, or blue cloth or whatever. But the idea is that it is fully immersed in the dye so as to capture the full color. When we read about the being baptized, the word is baptizo, which means to immerse, and it's equivalent to the Hebrew term phila, which means to immerse, not to pour or to sprinkle. So the meaning of the words in both Hebrew and Greek is to immerse. And the meaning of the act or the ritual of immersion means to identify with. That's what baptism is about. When the Jewish people practiced baptism with the proselyte, proselyte baptism, the individual who is not Jewish was now identifying himself with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and identifying himself with the Jewish people. So baptism means, the word means to immerse, but the significance of the term means to identify with. When John was baptizing, those that were baptized by John were identifying himself or herself with John's, let's call it this, John's back to God movement. 
So they were identifying themselves with John, and they were saying, you're calling us to repent. I need to repent. Identify with you and with what you're teaching. You're saying the Messiah is at hand. I identify with you, and I am trusting, and I believe your word that the Messiah is at hand. The Jewish leaders that were sent to investigate were not identifying themselves with John. Therefore, they did not submit to baptism, and as a result, they were the recipients of words of judgment. So they were identifying themselves with John's back-to-God movement. When believers in the Messiah of Israel submit to baptism, remember this is Yeshua's final command, right? To go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them or immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When individuals who identify themselves with the finished work of the Messiah of Israel, his death, burial, and resurrection, when we are baptized, we are identifying ourselves with what Messiah has done for us. We are not ceasing, in the case of Jewish believers, we are not ceasing to be Jews. So that when we are baptized, that's a statement that we no longer respect or consider our Jewish heritage or consider it of any significant value. We do. Baptism says nothing about rejecting one's Jewishness, Jewish identity, or Jewish heritage. It has everything to say we are now identifying ourselves with something, and that is with what Messiah has done and what he has provided and accomplished for us. When the Scripture speaks of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, it's the same thing. We are identifying, we are identified with the body of Messiah. That's why the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is one that serves to place us in the body of Messiah. So the question is, how does one become a member of Messiah's body? How does one become a member of Messiah's body of believers? We become members of his body by means of the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit who places us in the body of Messiah and provides us with a gift, a spiritual gift, in order to serve that body that we are now placed in. Always have to remember, baptism means identification with. That's what the significance of it is. So it's either you're identifying with the people of Israel and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's proselyte baptism. It means you're baptized by John, you're identifying with him, you become a disciple of John. That's what John and Andrew and Peter, they were disciples of John and they identified with him. So that when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they were ready to listen to their leader. They were ready to listen to the one that they identified with and they went after the Messiah who John just proclaimed. And that's why John later will say, I must decrease but he must increase because my purpose is to point to the Messiah and lead those who are following me to follow him. His was a preparatory work. So when you were baptized by John, you were identifying with John's ministry. And when he said that's the Messiah, that's another way of saying follow him now that he has come. When we are baptized by in water as believers in Messiah, we're identifying with what Messiah has done for us. And when we are baptized or immersed by the Spirit of God, we are identified with the body of Messiah and placed into his body. That's what uh, the scriptures are, are teaching us. 
So the meaning is an act of identification. So this is sort of repeating what I just said. It means to identify with a message, in this case John's message of repentance and the imminence of the kingdom. Identify with a person, be it Yeshua, be it John prior to his coming. Or identify with a group, the disciples of John or the disciples of Messiah becoming members of his body. It serves to show a break with one's former way of life. doesn't mean be a break with being Jewish, but it does mean a break with being identified by sin, and therefore now we are living in obedience to God. So we break from our former way of life, no longer going after pagan things, no longer going after those things that are of the world, you might say, and we're now going to follow our Messiah and his leading and his guiding. So being baptized by John meant one identified with his message and group of followers. And John had many disciples. As you can see, these multitudes uh, were coming uh, to be baptized by him, and they were following uh, after him. And this is this believer's baptism. One identifies with the work of Messiah who provides salvation. We identify ourselves with his death, burial, and resurrection. By the way, this is Paul's imagery in Romans chapter 6, where he says... We have died with Messiah, and we have been raised with him. And that's why immersion signifies that in the most clear and profound way. As one is immersed in the water, it is a signifying, I am now dying to my own life and to my old ways. And now as we e exit from the water, we are now coming up, as it were, into a new life with the Messiah of Israel as he leads us, guides us, and as he directs us. All believers in the uh, New Covenant Scriptures are immersions of believers. All baptisms. In other words, there are no infant baptisms, no children baptisms. They're all baptisms of believers that we read about in, uh, in the New Covenant. Now, Yeshua comes to uh, John, and he is immersed by John. And he says in verse 15 of Matthew's account, he says, to fulfill all righteousness. So the question is, why, if, if Yeshua is not a sinner, he's oftentimes asked, if Yeshua is not a sinner, like the rest of the people who are coming out to him, who are being, uh, who, to whom John is saying, repent, repent of what? Repent of one's sin, because the kingdom of the heaven is at hand. So the question is, why does Yeshua submit to his baptism, since he doesn't have to repent of anything, for he hadn't sinned. But there are, are six reasons for Yeshua's uh, baptism. Number one, identification. He identifies with righteousness. And that's what he says in Matthew 5. I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So as he is immersed, he is identifying with righteousness. And by doing so, he is indicating he's come to fulfill the demands of the Mosaic law. Which demands none of us can observe. And thus, by Messiah fulfilling all righteousness, he in effect not only fulfills it so as to demonstrate he's the Messiah and he is sinless and he is the one that can die for our sin, but in demonstrating or fulfilling righteousness, he also imparts his righteousness unto us. And that's why we stand guiltless before the Lord. We stand guiltless before the Lord, not because we live holy lives. 
we stand guiltless before the Lord because the Lord's righteousness is imparted, theological term is imputed unto us. And thus when the Lord sees us, he sees us as saints. That's why the New Covenant Scripture refers to believers as saints. Not because we're so good or not because, because we're so consistently trying to do the best we can, but we're referred to as saints, set apart ones, holy ones, because the righteousness of the Lord is imparted to us, and His righteousness thus is our righteousness, and we are seen as righteous before the Lord. That, in a word, is what grace is all about. It is God's mercy not to over merely overlook our sin. He doesn't overlook our sin. Our sin was judged in the person of Messiah as he endured our sin for us and the punishment thereby. He doesn't just overlook it and say, oh, you know, well, men and women will be men and women, boys and girls. He doesn't overlook it or discredit it or ignore it. The Messiah has paid the penalty for our sin and he's provided us with his righteousness not merely the means to be righteous but he imparts to us his righteousness and thus we stand holy before the Lord and not only that we stand free before him and that's why we can finally be ourselves joyfully because when you realize God's righteousness, the Lord's righteousness is imparted to you, there's a sense of guiltlessness. And thus you can stand free before the Lord and rejoice in the goodness of God and in what he's doing in our lives. So there's a lightness that one experiences, I believe, when one ex experiences salvation. He saves us, he imparts righteousness, and God sees us as saints, you know. So, you know, there's Saint Raymond, who, who is among us, you know. There is Saint Bob, you know, and Saint Eileen, because the righteousness of Messiah is imparted to us. It's amazing. And God has done that for us. So why does he submit to John's baptism? To, de to identify, to fulfill all righteousness, to identify with righteousness in that he will be that one Israelite, finally, who comes on the scene of history and fulfills the law of the Lord. Secondly, he identifies with John's message. While he does not need to repent, he certainly desires everyone to repent. And as John says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Yeshua is saying, yes, it is, because here I am. And so he identifies with John's message and that the kingdom is now about to dawn in some measure, maybe not completely, but in some measure where the king is, the kingdom is also present in some measure. And so as Messiah goes about his ministry, he teaches the truths of the kingdom, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So the kingdom truths are being taught. When he heals individuals, the kingdom's power is being demonstrated and shown. When he manifests himself to some disciples in all of his glory, the kingdom's glory is being seen. When the voice of the Father is uttered and can be heard, 
the kingdom's Lord is now among us. All of that are indicators that in some measure the kingdom is present. So he identifies with John's message. He identifies himself with the believing remnant. That's always something we have to try to remember not to ignore. That there's always a remnant among the Jewish people who are believing the things of God. In this case, it's the work of God through John's ministry. It's the work of God through the Messiah's coming. It's the work of God through Isaiah's prophecies. It's the work of God through Elijah's, you know, a prophetic ministry. There's always a remnant. In the case of Elijah, it's a great example because Elijah himself says, I'm the only one who's left. Everyone has turned their back on you, Lord. I'm the only one. And the Lord says, oh, there's 6,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. A remnant. We don't know how many Jewish people were alive at that time. Maybe there were a number of millions. You can figure two million coming out of Egypt. Time of Elijah, I don't know what the Jewish population might have been. Let's just say three million. Out of three million Jewish people, only 6,000 had not bowed their knee to Baal. It's a remnant. That's to say a small segment of the Jewish people. And here there's a small segment that are responding to John. And, um, and thus by submitting to John's baptism, and this is another profound idea, Yeshua is identifying with that faithful remnant who are coming out to John and saying, count me in. And immerse me as well. When Yeshua comes, he's identifying himself with that crowd of people who are being immersed for, the re- for a repentance unto sin. So if you carry that forward, it's like Yeshua is identifying himself with us. You know, in one sense, we identify ourselves with him. But in this action, he is taking initiative to identify himself with us. And so he counts us significant and valuable that he would say, I want to identify myself with this body of people who want to identify themselves with the living God. Kind of neat things to think about. And um, he submits to John's ministry so as to be publicly made known to Israel. Remember, he's the Messiah of Israel, so this is where his public uh, ministry will commence, private ministry or life ends. And now to Israel, he will be presented as their Messiah. He certainly identifies with sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes that clear. And according to Acts, it is in this context that he receives the anointing and empowerment of the Spirit. And his life and ministry will be conducted not only or simply on the basis of his own deity, but in submission and reliance upon the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Because as one who is unique, the God-man taking on humanity at his birth, he is also demonstrating in this fashion how he lives as unto God by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so in this event, the entire triunity of God appears. And there are glimpses of this, even in the Hebrew Scriptures there are some, but here we get one of those glimpses. First of all, the Father's voice is heard. 
And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Secondly, the son is being immersed. And thirdly, the spirit descends in a form in which John is able to see him when he descends as a dove. It doesn't say he dis- that he is a dove. All of the t- passages, whether Mark, Matthew, or Luke, all say as a dove. And this was a, a revelation given to John. We're not told uh, the we're not, not told when the revelation is given, but John does tell us he was told that God revealed to him that the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend like a dove. That is the Messiah of Israel. Now, John, of course, knows who Yeshua is. They're related. And they're close to the same age. John is six months older, at least with respect to his humanity. Uh, With respect to his deity, Yeshua is a whole lot older, right? He preceded him for a long time. But uh, what John is seeing is the authenticating sign that now the Messiah is beginning his ministry and is being inaugurated to conduct his uh, messianic ministry. So why does the Spirit of God appear as a dove? This is kind of interesting because in Genesis chapter 1, the very first reference to the Holy Spirit is that of a dove. It says that when God created the world, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And that word uh, hovered, merachefet, is a word that is used in the Hebrew Scriptures to speak of a mother hen, a mother bird, hovering over her eggs just before they hatch. And so what's going on in Genesis is the Spirit of God hovers over the creation just before the land is hatched. You know, because the earth is created, it's covered with water, and then the earth, the land masses appear. And so the Spirit of God is pictured as hovering over the earth like a bird might be hovering over an egg just before it hatches, and the earth then hatches land. Similarly, um... The Spirit of God then hovers over the waters, then the land appears. In the Midrashim, the rabbis specify that Genesis 1, verse 2, that th- that uh, the Spirit was a dove. Interestingly enough, the images are there in Jewish tradition. And the Spirit of God hovering over Messiah just before he hatches his public ministry. Because he's empowering Messiah to conduct his ministry as well. And so that is why he appears as a dove and was told he would appear that way. When the voice of the Lord says, this is my beloved son, by calling Messiah his son, he is specifically making connection with Psalm 2, which refers to the Messiah as God's son. There's also Proverb, I forget which Proverb, I think in chapter 8, which also speaks of the Messiah as a son. But Psalm 2, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry. And the whole psalm is about the reign of the son. Pay homage to him, bow before him, that you would not occur his wrath. In Jewish tradition, when the voice of God is spoken, it is referred to as a bat kol, or which literally means a daughter of a voice. But this became a technical term by the rabbis to speak of God's voice when it would just manifest itself from heaven. And so in rabbinic thought, God's voice ceased with the prophet Malachi. And that there was no direct revelation from God. Now, 400 years later, and God's voice reappears. 
and it reappears with regard to the herald's ministry and with the Messiah's presence. The rabbi said the next time that the voice of God would sound would be when Elijah would reconduct his ministry in telling the Jewish people of the coming of the Messiah. Malachi says that the Lord would send in the last days, he would send Elijah the prophet who would turn the hearts of their children to their fathers and their fathers to their children. In other words, Malachi is telling us Elijah would have a heralding ministry of the Messiah when he would come to establish his kingdom and reunite the nation of Israel and there'd be no more conflict among the people. John is having a heralding ministry of the first coming of Messiah when he comes to provide atonement for sin. And thus the bot coal reappears and the connection between John and Elijah is going to be made uh, throughout the, um, the gospel accounts. Now, this did not mean God, when the rabbi said that he would, the voice of God would, it, would manifest itself again during Elijah's ministry of heralding the Messiah, they didn't mean God would be silent. But in rabbinic thought, periodically, God would speak out of heaven, but not give a, necessarily a long discourse. He would say maybe one or two sentences, but no more. And that's exactly the kind of picture we have with regard to the immersion of Messiah. It's almost as if, you know, the, this tradition is not something the scriptures teach, but it's God sort of condescending to utilize the traditions and culture of his people in order to make the Messiah that much easier to be responded to and to be received by his own people. So two things occur with the immersion. First of all, he is identified with God the Father to be the Messianic Son, and he is anointed by the Holy Spirit for service. And so now the ministry of Messiah is about to be launched. In Luke verse 23, it tells us that he began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Not exactly 30, but somewhere around uh, 30 years of age. So he's a young man in his ministry. Now, paragraph 25 follows on the heels of 24, and it's the temptation account of the Messiah. The testing. Scripture uses te the word temptation um, is used in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's used to lure into sin. That's how Satan tempts. He lures us to sin. James says that God does not tempt anyone. He does test, but he doesn't lure into sin. God is not desirous of luring us to the point in which we would disobey him. The evil one is. But he will allow the evil one to bring testings in our lives so as to uh, strengthen us or to reveal what is truly within us. So the event occurs, and the evil one may have a purpose of luring us to sin and thereby incur God's displeasure. But God allows that event to take place because from God's perspective, it is a test to demonstrate who we have truly become. So when the Lord says of Job to the evil one, have you seen my servant Job? He's not desirous that Satan would lure him into sin, but he is desirous of demonstrating the righteousness of Job to the world because he says he is the most righteous man in all the earth. And so the challenge is meant to demonstrate that truth. Same thing happens here. From God's perspective, he wants to demonstrate Messiah is 
that Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel. The evil one is desirous of luring the, the Messiah into sin so that he would be disqualified from providing the final atonement for our sin. That's his desire. But the Lord looks at his son and he says, he is the son of God. And he will be demonstrated to be Messiah and no less. So when James says that the Father or the Lord does not tempt anyone, that is true. He tests like Abraham. The Lord tested Abraham, but that was not a luring into sin. It was an opportunity for Abraham to demonstrate his faith, and he does, because he is willing to offer up his son um, when the Lord calls him to do that. And what's really neat about the story of Abraham is that at the end of his life, we see Abraham become the kind of man that we look at and say, wow, who could ever do that? Well, he couldn't do that in chapter 12. He was lying about his wife. But he could do that in chapter 20 because now God has worked on his life for X number of years. He's become a different person. And that's true for all of us. When we first invite the Lord into our lives, yes, we looked at some of the things we've done. We said, how in the world could that be? I'm sure Abraham is, was thinking, how could I ever have said that about Sarah? But at the end of his life, he would never have said that about Sarah. How do we know that? Because he was willing to offer up his son. So things change. And that's the neat thing about what God's doing in our lives. We are never the same person we once were. We are always growing in the Lord. And it may be that sometimes our life is, you know, going up and then it trickles down then it goes up. But the graph is like this, not like this. It may be like this, <laughs> but it's this, you know, and we're headed in the right direction because that's what God is working in our lives. The connection between paragraph 25 and 24 uh, should not be missed. First of all, in paragraph 24, that is the immersion of Messiah, he was declared to be the Son of God. Now in the temptation, he's going to prove himself to be the Son of God. In paragraph 24, he came to fulfill all righteousness. Now in paragraph 25, that righteousness will be tested. And as it is, and this comes to a conclusion, it further confirms that he truly is our Messiah and Savior. The temptation of Yeshua is also part of God's divine plan. It's very important that we recognize God is in control. I didn't preach on this part, segment Sunday on Romans 9. Well, you know, he says God, he will have mercy on who will have mercy. God is sovereign. We have to be careful, as many scholars have said throughout all of history, two important things to always keep in mind when you're studying God's Word. You have to say everything God's Word says, and you can't say less than what God's Word says. You can't say more. You can't say less. So when it says God shows mercy on who will show mercy, you may want to say more. Doesn't that make God evil? You're saying more than what God has said. You may like to say when it says God will show mercy on who will show mercy. Well, he does that on the basis of what he sees in our lives. Well, now you're saying less because Paul doesn't say that anywhere either. So we have to be faithful to God's Word even when it's very difficult or maybe even impossible to unravel. But we have no right to make it say things it's not saying by making it say more or less. So we have to be faithful to the Word of God. We can try to unravel these things, but where they cannot be unraveled, we ought not to force them to unravel to suit our preferences. Yes, I would like to say God is merciful to those that are very responsive because that makes sense to me. But I'm so glad that that's just not true 
because I'm not very responsive, but God continues to be merciful to me, you know, and you as well. So it's important that we recognize both of these factors. Now, what comes out here is God's divine work in all of us. All three writers tell us the Spirit of God led Yeshua into the wilderness specifically to be tested and tempted and lured and attacked by the evil one. So he says in Matthew, oh, I have it here. He says in a Matthew, the Spirit is King James. The Spirit driveth him forth into the wilderness. In Matthew's account, Yeshua was led up of the Spirit. In Luke's account, twice he says he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was led by the Spirit. So never think the challenges in your life are the result of not living for God. Because Yeshua was full of the Holy Spirit and was still led to be challenged by the evil one. So challenges are no indicators that God's not with us. It may be an indicator God is fully with us. So the Spirit of God is energizing the events that are about to unfold. And notice this, too. A lot of details are not given by Mark. Only a, a small two verses are attributed to this whole mo moment. But he's the one that tells us he was there for 40 days. That will be important as we get a sense of how Yeshua is that representative Israelite. Just like he says in John 15, he's the true vine, which is another way of saying he's the true Israelite. What's going to happen here is these, all these comparisons between Israel and the Messiah to show he is Israel's Messiah and what Israel failed to do as a nation, the Messiah of Israel has done successfully. And therefore, we as Jews, as well as non-Jews, but we as Jews ought to all the more readily embrace it. And so in Matthew and Luke, they give us details of the temptation. The order is different. And the reason for that is because Matthew's account focuses on Messiah as king. So the last temptation has to do with his kingdom. As it climaxes to the point Matthew wants to make, the kingdom of, the, of Messiah is at hand. Luke's account is in chronological order. We saw that at the very outset. He got all this information to set in order chronologically what has transpired. So if we have to pick which one is the right order, we'd have to go with Luke because Luke tells us that's why he wrote. Matthew wrote because he wanted to present Yeshua as king, and so the last temptation focuses on his kingship. So Luke <laughs> gives us the chronology, and Matthew focuses on the king. Now the purpose is, from God's perspective, to prove the sinlessness of Yeshua, so he's Messiah. From Satan's perspective, he wants to cause him to sin so he cannot provide the atonement. But what Messiah does here, and I want to end on this, and I'm sorry if I'm taking a little long hanging in with me. What I want to end on this is a very important lesson we are to learn. Because Messiah, on the one hand, represents Israel. Where Israel failed, Messiah is successful, therefore we should trust him. That's the argument Matthew wants to make, because he's writing for Israel, he's writing for the Jews. On the other hand, we need to realize that Yeshua also identifies with all believers, and in this passage, he's going to teach us how to deal with temptation and how to deal with the evil one. And we need to hear this, because in our culture and society, there are many uh, fellowships of believers, many churches, we could say, a context which believers are gathering together where they are not waging spiritual warfare the right way. And in not doing it the right way, they will not be successful. 
So I want us here at Beth Ariel, because the evil one is certainly going to take aim at us for two reasons. Number one, we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength here. And number two, as ones who love the Jewish people, whether we are Jews or not, we love the Jewish people, we already have put a bullseye on ourselves to the evil one and said, here, hit me. Because if there is anyone who does not like the Jewish people, it's the evil one, right? That's his target. Revelation 12 tells us that he's the dragon that seeks to destroy uh, God's chosen people. And so when we identify with God's chosen people, he's not happy with you. And if you're not Jewish and identify with the Jewish people, he particularly doesn't like you and is particularly unhappy with you. So we need, of all peoples, to be aware of the reality of spiritual warfare and also how to deal with it. So I want to try to share this with you if I can, and then we'll call it. There are five ways in which Messiah is identifying with Israel as a representative. First of all, he's called the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, turn the stones to bread, the evil one says. Well, the term Son of God is a term that originates with the Jewish people. And because Moses is told, you're to go to Pharaoh and tell him, Israel is my son. So by utilizing in this context the statement Son of God, there's that correlation being made between Israel, the Son of God, in a national sense, and Messiah, the Son of God, in a more intimate, personal sense. Because he is the second person of the triunity, so he's uniquely the Son of God. There is a sense in which all human beings are sons, little less, sons of God. What we mean by that is we are all creations of God. And in all being creations of God, creating the image of God, we're his children. There's a sense in which believers are sons of God in a way in which others are not. When we embrace Messiah as our Savior, we are then made, we are given the right, John tells us, the exousia, the right, the authority to become the sons of God. So there's a sense in which all of us in this room were or are sons of God. There's a sense in which some of us in this room perhaps are not sons of God, but certainly all of us who are sons of God, there, was, there is a sense in which we have become sons of God in another sense, in which we mean children of God and members of his family. Everybody with me? There's a third sense in which son is used, and that is with Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation is uniquely the son of God because they are chosen by God to be his unique nation. So we've seen three ways the phrase son of God can be used. Son of God is all people, children of God, created in his image. Sons of God, individuals that have recognized Messiah and thereby are given another status of being a son of God in which we have an intimate relationship with him. In a third sense, Israel as a nation is the son of God in a way in which the Chinese are not, the Germans are not, or the Russians are not. But there's a fourth sense in which this idea of Son of God is used, and that is with regard to the Messiah of Israel. He's uniquely the Son of God because he's the second person of the triunity and took on human form to come into our lives. The Spirit of God didn't do that, and certainly the Father did neither. But Messiah, Yeshua, did, and he's the Son of God in that unique way. Now, we can't completely define all of that because we don't have enough information to go further. But we can see the four different ways in which they're used. All human beings, some human beings, the nation of Israel, and Yeshua. So when here the phrase Son of God is used, it's a, it's a direct connecting of Messiah with his people. 
It's saying, and what he's going to show is whereas his people, when tempted by the evil one, have failed, he, when tempted by the evil one, succeeds. So he becomes the true Israelite. In another way, both the testing of Messiah and the testing of Israel occur in the wilderness. Israel comes out of Egypt. For 40 years, they're tempted in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they failed. Over and over again, they complain. Over and over again, they worship false gods. Over and over again, well, to such a degree, they don't enter the promised land. And all that come out of Egypt die in the wilderness. They fail. But Messiah, the true Israelite, will go into the wilderness. He will succeed. Both are connected with the number 40. The Israelites will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Messiah goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And he comes out successful. Both are energized by the Spirit of God. It's very interesting to read Isaiah 63 where it says the Spirit of God led the Jewish people out of Egypt. Scripture says Moses led them. The scripture says the Shekinah glory led them. Isaiah 63 says the Spirit of God led them. And in the same instance here, the Spirit of the Lord leads the Messiah into the wilderness to be tempted. Israel failed, but Messiah succeeded. And then each time Yeshua quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He does that for a reason. The book of Deuteronomy is God's covenant with Israel. That's why it's, it's referred to as Deuteronomy, Deuteros Namas, which means second law, repet, repetition of the law. It is the covenantal statement in which Israel is the covenant people of God. But as the covenant people of God, they failed to obey the covenant. The Messiah of Israel will go into the wilderness, but he will obey the covenant. And thus he quotes from the covenant text and acts upon it, showing that he fulfills all righteousness and obeys the covenant that God made with Israel in behalf of Israel. And thus, Israel ought to embrace their Messiah, for he is the fulfillment and the completion of all that was intended for Israel to do, but failed to do. That's how Messiah in this text is a representative of Israel. And what Israel could not do, Messiah could do, and Israel can trust in their Messiah to have done it in their behalf and thus we stand before God as if we had done it because he does it for us and imparts his doing of it in our behalf. That's why we do not need to obey the law as believers in Israel. See, when people say, well, I obey the law to live good or to, you know, I'm saved by grace, but I obey the law to, um, to incur uh, obedience in God's favor, they don't understand what Messiah has done. The, and, you know, it's hard to, you know, just sit down with someone or someone's and explain that. It takes a number of passages to come together, understand them, and then you see the picture emerge. And that's what I'm hoping is beginning to happen. Because you can't do this in just one sitting. But if you've been here and seeing the pattern unfold, and you see the interconnection, the dominoes hitting each other, you see that what's going on is the Messiah is doing what we can't, but he not only does what we can't, he does what we can't for us and then imparts it to us. And so for someone to say, well, then, then I obey the law for this reason or that, 
It's utter foolishness. And what it really reveals is ignorance about God's word. Now, I'm compassionate to individuals. I wouldn't say, you know, you're ignorant. What's wrong with you? But I will say this. If you've been reading God's word for any length of time and you're still there, you are ignorant and you're not paying attention to what God is teaching. And that's not me telling you that. That's the scriptures telling you that because the writer to the Hebrews, what does he say? You ought to be feeding on the meat of the word and you're still dealing with the milk of the word. There is something wrong when God's word is continually unfolded to us and we continue to read it and we continue to come up with the wrong answer because we're not paying attention to it. That's a problem. And it doesn't go away by kindness. It goes away by saying you need to work harder. Because you're not getting what the scripture is truly teaching. And that's what this account is all about. What Israel cannot do for itself, Messiah could. And when he does it, he does it not only to demonstrate and model, but he does it so as to impart it unto us so we can stand before the Lord righteous in his sight. Now, uh, you know, now I'm sort of pontificating and preaching, and that's not the purpose here. But Yeshua's representative role with believers, this is really where I wanted to get to. And this is some of the most wonderful stuff in this early salvo of uh, Messiah's life and ministry. Hebrews 4.15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who had been tempted or tested in every way, in all respects, just as we are, but yet he did not sin. So that's the point that the, this is making. But here's what we need to understand. When it says that Messiah was tempted in every way like we, it does not mean that Messiah experiences every temptation you or I experience any more than we experience the same temptations Yeshua experienced. Now, it's very important to get this point. Messiah does not experience the same temptations you experience. You do not experience the same temptations he experienced. Very easy to illustrate. When was the last time you were tempted to turn stones to bread? Probably didn't happen. There's a good reason why. You can't do it. So the evil one's not going to tempt you to do what you can't do. And that's a great way to live a sinless life. Just draw the you know, bullseye about, of things you can't do. You know, and you never fall to temptation. But you see, Messiah can turn stones to bread. And so it can be a temptation if that's not what God would have him do. In the same way, when was the last time you were tempted to, I'm just saying, to like waste your time? All the time. Messiah is never tempted to waste his time. He's always doing the will of his Father. He's never wasting time. See, so, so when it says he's tempted every way you and I are, he was never tempted with drugs. He was never tempted with illicit sexual activity. He wasn't tempted to lie. Those weren't the things that tempted him. But there were things that could tempt him, and they're here. But when it says in Hebrews, he was tempted in all points, the text means with respect to. The idea is all temptation comes through three gateways. All temptation comes through three gateways. And those same gateways of temptation that come to us came to the Messiah. And thus he was tempted in the same areas through the same gateways. And if we can spot the gateways, then you can be on the alert 
how to avoid falling prey to the evil one and wage a victorious spiritual warfare against the Lord. Now, there's some lessons here that are really very powerful. I just want you to see it. I said this. He was tempted to turn stones to bread. We're not, and so on. But what it is meant are these gateways. The gateways are recorded in 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, here they are, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. That's where temptation for sin comes from. But it is from the world. Now, let me make, show you this little chart I put together here. If you take these three gateways of uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, you can see how they unfold in Scripture. So if you look at 1 John 2.16, those are the gateways. That's what the first column is going to show. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. If you look at Matthew 4 and Luke 4, we're going to see the three temptations of the Messiah. And when we look at Genesis 3, we're going to see the temptation of, Adam, of Eve. And so here's how it plays out. When you look at the lust of the flesh, that's what Yeshua was tempted. That's the gateway. Turned the stones to bread. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. With respect to his humanity, he was hungry. And so he is tempted, lured into sin to turn the stones to bread. Now, there'd be nothing wrong with him turning stones to bread because the Messiah, well, he multiplied loaves and fishes. And he can make children of Abraham out of stones. So he can certainly make bread. It's not as if he has the inability to do it. But the problem here is the evil one is telling you. And so to do that, he would obey the evil one. So he is not going to obey the evil one. He quotes from Deuteronomy that uh, man does not live. What an interesting connection. You don't live by bread. Although I eat like that's how one lives. And in fact, I ate over someone's home. They said to my wife, I never saw a little guy like that eat so much. Well, I was hungry. But to turn stones to bread, and he says, Man does not live, mankind, humanity, men and women do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, I'm not going to obey one who isn't God. And so notice in, in Genesis, when Eve is lured to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it says that she saw that the fruit was good food, the lust of the flesh. All temptations will come from one of these three gateways. Second one is the lust of the eyes. The evil one takes Messiah and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, if you bow down to me, I will give them to you. Well, he is the prince of the power of the air, and I think he was telling the truth. He could have given them to him. When you look at Eve, it says that when she saw the fruit, she said, it was delightful to the eyes. So another gateway through which temptations are going to come are through the things that you look at and the things that you see. And then the third thing is the pride of life. What do you value? For the Messiah, it's, it is the idea of being recognized he's the Messiah. So Satan says, look, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. That's the southwestern corner of the temple wall. And the tithe of Messiah was over 200 feet high. Today, it's more like about 80-something feet off the ground, but about 200. And he says, look, if you jump, the Scripture says the angels will catch you up so that you would not uh, fall to the ground. 
everyone coming into the temple to worship. That's where the southwestern corner is located, right by the steps that lead into the temple to worship. Everyone would see you, and they would hail you as the Messiah. Isn't that what you want, to be recognized as the Messiah? What is it you are prideful about or find of value? And that's where he was tempted. And that's where the uh, Eve was. She saw the fruit was desirable to make her wise. So, and here's another thing. Satan isn't very creative. He doesn't create anything. So what he did with Eve at the very beginning of time, he still does with you and I now. It's the same thing. We need to be on the alert. Our eyes, our uh, human cravings, our natural cravings, like food, sex, other things, natural cravings, and the things we value, that we take pride in, that we want people to look at us and think well of us because of. Think of those areas, and when it is out of control or in the wrong direction, you know the evil one is at work. That's what, sa what um, Satan was doing with Yeshua. Now, how does he do this? Because what is illustrated is how we are to uh, be responsive. So four things we learn about spiritual wealth, uh, warfare. One, if we resist the evil one, he will flee. Well, Yeshua resisted him, and he fled. And that's true for us, too. And the text says he departed. So he will leave. Temptation will end. And, you know, if you say, I just can't resist it. Well, you know, may not be able to do so 100%. But if you do, he will depart. Second thing, every vi victory is only temporary. And it says that he left him for a season. Even Yeshua's victory was not the end of the story. It's always only temporary. So you need to realize that this battle doesn't mean the next one is guaranteed. Secondly, spiritual warfare, is, and this is, I like this statement, is not a one-time battle. It's a lifelong conflict. The second thing is, note what Yeshua does not do. And... Uh, I think this is very telling. First of all, he never calls Satan any names. You know, very, in fact, he doesn't really even talk with him. I mean, he does say, and he said to him, but he doesn't even engage him. You know, in some of these churches and stuff, we see people laying their hands on people, and, you know, Satan, go away. Do, say, Jesus doesn't even do that. He never says anything about binding him. Think about that. You know, we bind you in that. You know, this is all, in my opinion, foolishness. Secondly, he does not rebuke him. How often do you hear that? You know, I rebuke you and doesn't do that. And he does not command him, go away, leave me alone, do anything. But this is what he does do. And I'll tell you why people don't do what he does, because it's hard. You know, I don't mean hard in that you can't do it. It's hard in that you have to invest some time. And this is what he does. He resorts to the truth of Scripture. If you're not reading God's word and scrutinizing it, it's not enough just to read the Bible through in a year and think you got it. He was woken morning by morning by his father, Isaiah 50, 52, to study the word. Look at this. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. Who quotes from Deuteronomy? And the only reason we know those passages is because Yeshua quoted from them. You and I would never quote from that book, you know. When was the last time, you know, in a, in a need of some kind, you quoted from Numbers? I mean, when was the last time I ever quoted from Leviticus, you know? Why? I'm just not a very good student of that book of the Bible. I don't know it. You know? That's the point. You know, we don't know the word, so what do we do? We say things. We bind you. We, we do this. We pray that. You know, we just say things. We're not thoughtful. We're not thinking. 
And then we wonder why things don't change. They don't change because we're not doing it right. How do you do it? You do it by the way Yeshua did it. He resorts to the truth of Scripture. The only way you can resort to the truth of Scripture, you've got to read the, the Scripture. Not just read it, but you have to study it. You have to spend time with it. You know, when I was growing up, for me, baseball was everything. I could tell you stats. I could tell you the history and all of that kind of thing. You know, it takes time to do that. And you've got to enjoy it. You've got to like it. You know, you've got to sort of immerse yourself. I know you get the point. He resorts to the truth of Scripture. And the second thing is, he applies it to the situation. And so the Scripture says, knowledge puffs up. You know, knowledge just puffs up the individual. But knowledge applied can then benefit the person. But if you just, you know... Uh, if we just content ourselves in knowing things, that's pu being puffed up and prideful. But if by knowing things we can help each other to live good and to wage a, 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 a sound warfare, well, then, then we're not being puffed up, but we're really doing the right thing. So this is my advice to you. Study the Word of God and apply it in your life. Yeah. It's simple, right? It's also so hard because it takes work. You have to know it, and then you have to do it. And those are two things that are tough. Uh, can't waste time <laughs> like Yeshua didn't and get into it. And then as situations come up, boy, you got to store up God's Word. We're looking at that, Psalm 119, to store up God's Word in our hearts so we do not sin against Him. That's the way to do wage spiritual warfare. It's none of this other, you know, mumbo-jumbo stuff. It's all simple, down to earth, study the Word, live it. Put, it. put it into practice. And we do that, and we'll see amazing spiritual things happen in powerful ways. Knowledge puffs up, thus it must be applied. So here's the uh, final thing I wanted to, wanted to say. Knowledge of the Word and applications of its truths will give us victory over the evil one. Keep in mind, not 100%. I mean, that will always give us victory. The problem is we don't always do it. So remember, it's always temporary, and it's a lifelong conflict. And therefore, the study and application of God's Word has to be lifelong as well. We'll call it there. Okay? Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in great need of your Spirit to lead us and to guide us and empower us just as he did for Messiah Yeshua. Help us, Lord, when we encounter conflicts, be it from evil uh, ones who intend mischief, such as those that John faced, or be it the evil one himself who um, may cause us to think things we ought not to think about. Lord, may we keep in mind your word, the three gateways in which all temptations come, May we be committed to studying your word, scrutinizing it, investing ourselves in it, pouring our lives into it, and then allowing it to pour its life back into us. Help us to apply its truth moment by moment, and thereby live a life that pleases you. We would do this trusting in you and relying upon you to um, make it possible. So thank you for this night, Lord, and thank you for your word to us. May each and every one who has come uh, be blessed by you and given a safe trip home. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Um, I don't have any announcements or anything. Adelaide? <laughs> um, okay, so we're, we're good. If, 
any of you need to leave, please feel free to do so. Uh, I don't even know what time it is, so it could be like really late, uh, 9.15. So um, if you need to leave, please uh, just do so. If you have some questions, I'd be happy to entertain them as we sort of uh, close down. What's that? I'm not certain about that. I would say it's at least contemporary to um, uh, to first century thought. I'm not, you know, some of these statements are sometimes penned later, but might be reflective of ideas that existed prior to when they were in scripture, in scriptured or written down. I don't mean scripture, scripture, but inspired, but I mean written down. Well, do you suppose they picked that up from Noah? And the flood, and he sends the dove out, and the dove comes back with the. It's possible that those connections were made. Uh, I'm just not certain. Okay, and because we never read about baptism in the Old Testament, where does that come from in the New? Now I'll need to th- I'll need to think about that. It was existing in Jewish tradition with regard to Gentiles converting to Judaism. There, I'm trying to think of statements in the Hebrew Scriptures that speak of cleansing. And there, well, that's true. You have that in the Mosaic Law, right? But that was a little different, you know, motivation, right? And for different reasons, the high priest cleansed. So there, there was association of immersion with cleansing and the connection made with Gentiles being cleansed of that pagan, idolatrous ways. It's probably where the connections come from. Good. Is there any other questions? Diana? Well, that was a sign John was given, just simply telling him that when you baptize the individual upon whom you will see the Spirit descend like a dove, that's, that's the indicator that uh, the Messiah is now to be launched into his public ministry. He knows who Yeshua is, and he knows that he's the Messiah. He knows that because even before he's born, he's heralding him, Right? while he's still in Elizabeth's womb and Mary comes, it says that he starts jumping because he's already heralding him. But the Lord tells him when to start the heralding ministry and pointing people to him occurs when you see the Spirit of God descend upon him. Yeah, it doesn't mean he didn't recognize him. It only means that when that happens, right, Oh, yeah, no. Correct. Yeah.
No, the Shekinah glory departs in the book of Ezekiel, chapters, I'm going to say 9 to 11. And the theme is Ichabod, which means the glory, kabod is the Hebrew word for glory. Ich means to depart or to go. So what happened, because of Israel's sin that Ezekiel speaks about, which will result in the Babylonian captivity, the Shekinah glory departs from Israel. So it, it, he pictures it as lifting up off of the holy, uh, holy place, le- leaving, or I should say the Holy of Holies, and the mercy seat, because that's where it hovered as smoke in the Holy of Holies. In Eze- you mean in Ezekiel? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't say that, that Elijah went up to heaven in a chariot of fire. It says he goes up in a whirlwind. But it does say that angels, right, because the angels appear to him in chariots of fire to take him up into heaven, but they take him up in a whirlwind. The Shekinah is the glory. It was what? In the what? No. It, what, it, no, the Shekinah is distinct from the Messiah, but it is associated with him. No. Now, on the Mount of the Transfiguration, we see him glorified, but then it says a bright cloud overshadowed him. So it doesn't embody him. It is distinct from him as a manifestation of his presence. It's not in him. It is a localization of God's presence distinct from him. So God is leading them, but the smoke of his presence might be in the temple. It's simply a manifestation that he is present in a unique way with his people. What's that? It's not omnipresent because it moves. You know, the Shekinah glory led them from each from here to here. If it's omnipresent, it's all over. No. No, only God himself is omnipresent. Nothing other than him can be. And the Shekinah glory is not God. It's only a manifestation of his presence. Not of God, of his presence. I don't, well, smoke and God. And he can make smoke like he can make an earth, he can make water, and he can make something that uniquely manifests his presence. But it doesn't localize his presence, because even though he's leading the people, even though he's in the, te- the Shekinah glory is in the temple, right, he, he can be present with his people anywhere. He can, that's is amazing to think about. Okay, you're welcome. Testing Kurt.